I uh, covered last week these verses in uh, kind of a general way, but I wanted to, they're too meaty to just brush over them, so I wanted to go back again and, and get into more detail. So I'm going to read again from John chapter 20, starting at verse 29, going down to the end of the chapter. And then, uh, Lord willing, a week from Sunday, we'll be back in John 21. And as I mentioned, after we finish John, I want to cover the book of Colossians. And so you could be reading that if you have, um, if you'd like to read ahead for devotional time. I'm reading, uh, and and by the way, if you're a visitor, there's an outline in the bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits and on the church website that you can access. I'm reading here from the New American Standard Bible. Jesus said to him, that is to Thomas, who has just proclaimed Jesus as my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. A question that I often ask couples who come to me for counsel is, do you want God's blessing on your marriage? It's a no-brainer question, of course. They always look at me kind of dumbfounded like, well, what a stupid question. And I've yet to have anyone go, nah, nah, we're not interested in God's blessing, thanks. Um, But then the second question gets a little stickier, of course, and that's when I ask, well, are you willing to obey God's word as it applies to your marriage? Because it's obvious that to enjoy God's blessing, we have to be willing to obey God's word. Now, God's blessings are gracious in the sense we can't earn them, uh, nothing we can do to merit them. And as you know, he gives his greatest blessing of salvation freely to the ungodly who trust in Jesus. So it's not like you have to build up merit and earn salvation. It's a free gift. On the other hand, if we reject that blessing, if we rebel against God's kindness, um, if we are defiant or disobedient, then we can't expect At the same time, God bless me while I'm being rebellious. Uh, It just doesn't work. And so God's blessings are on those who obey him. Now, when I'm talking about his blessing, I'm talking about his his favor, his goodness, his joy, um, the well-being that he bestows on us freely. In the Old Testament, the Jewish priests would bless Uh, the Israelites, in Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26, they would say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord, uh, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. 
And so God's blessings encompass the total well-being that comes from being the object of God's favor. It can include material blessings such as good health and adequate financial provisions, but I need to point out there's a, a heresy that says that that's the right of every person, and the Bible is very clear that God blesses some of his children in the midst of suffering, imprisonment, martyrdom, all sorts of trials. So material blessings are God's gift when we enjoy them, but they are not guaranteed. Uh, It can include harmonious relationships in our families, uh, peace with others, including, I think, living in a country as we do that's free from war at present. That's a blessing from God. But the greatest blessings that God gives are not these material or relational blessings. The greatest blessings are spiritual, as the Apostle Paul put it in in Ephesians 1.3, when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so if we have those eternal spiritual blessings then we are blessed even if we suffer. And 1 Peter 4.14 expresses that when Peter says, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. And he's just reflecting there the Beatitudes where Jesus said, blessed are you, you know, when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, when men revile you and slander you and so on for my name's sake. And then Peter adds, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. During his earthly ministry, Jesus pronounced blessings on a number of occasions. The most famous or well-known are the Beatitudes that I just alluded to. Um, He also told the disciples in Matthew 13 that they were blessed because their eyes saw and their ears heard things that were hidden, spiritual truths that were hidden from others. Uh, Jesus blessed Peter when he made his famous confession of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Interestingly, when a woman pronounced blessing on Jesus' mother Mary, Jesus corrected her by saying in Luke 11, 28, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. He blessed the little children who were brought to him. He pronounced a future blessing on uh, all of those who wait obediently for his return. And just before he ascended into heaven, Luke says the last thing he did was he blessed the apostles. Now, John's gospel only records two blessings that Jesus gave. One of them we've already studied. It was in the upper room when He had washed the disciples' feet, and he said, I've given you an example that you would do as I have done for you. And then he said in John 13, 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Uh, So he pronounced a blessing on those who obey his example of humble service. And then here in our text, in verse 29, Jesus tells Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see 
and yet believe, and I presume that includes almost everyone here. We have not seen Jesus risen from the dead, but we believe in him. And so he blesses all those after his ascension into heaven who come to faith in him. And so the message that I want to explore today is that those who believe in Jesus Christ through the apostolic testimony will be blessed. I think, if you're like me, sometimes we think, oh, if I only could have been on earth living over in Israel when Jesus was there, what a wonderful experience that would have been, and I'm sure it would have been wonderful. And especially, I tend to think, well, if I could have seen the risen Lord like the apostles and the other witnesses did after he arose bodily from the dead, I think I'd be fixed for life. And yet here, um, Jesus implies a contrast between Thomas and all the others who saw him after he was risen and us. And the implication is, well, yeah, they were blessed, but we're really blessed. We even have a greater blessing who have believed in him even though we have not seen him. And so I want to explore that blessing and what it means, uh, how, how we can obtain that blessing for ourselves. The first thing to note, then, is that the goal of the apostolic testimony contained in the written word of God is that we would believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus, after, um, or John, after reporting Jesus' commendation of Thomas's faith, and the faith of all those who believe without seeing, then gives his purpose statement in verse 30 and 31 when he says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these have been written for this purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It is clear in the Bible that our only source for knowing about Jesus Christ so that we may believe in him is the written testimony of the apostolic writers who were inspired to write down what they did in the New Testament. Now, of course, the entire Old Testament pointed ahead to Jesus uh, all of the sacrifices, the other things in the Old Testament speak of him and his work and what he would do. But those Old Testament truths can only be adequately understood through the lens of looking back through what is recorded for us in the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament writers to record truthfully all that we need to know about Jesus Christ so that we can believe in him and be saved. And what this means is, your feelings are not a reliable source for understanding who Jesus is and what he did. A lot of people rely on their feelings. You know, you may feel, for example, well, I believe in Jesus because he's always kind and loving. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, was he kind and loving when he reamed out the Pharisees and called them a brood of vipers and, and uh, hypocrites? Yeah, 
But you have to encompass that in your understanding of kind and loving. Was he kind and loving when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan? And I would argue, yeah, he was. And so what I'm saying is you can't go by feelings. You have to go by the revelation that God, through the Holy Spirit, saw fit to write in the New Testament to form your understanding of who Jesus is. Otherwise, you'll believe in a false Jesus, which is to say you'll not believe in Jesus at all, but in your own idol, your own false understanding of who Jesus is. So our, our knowledge of Christ is contained in the written revelation of the New Testament. It also means that experiences such as dreams and visions are not a reliable source for understanding who Jesus is. Now, I'm fully aware that there are many uh, people, mostly from Islamic backgrounds today, who are coming to faith in Christ through dreams and visions, and I'm not discounting that. But I am arguing this. If that's all they have and all they rely on, they will not know Jesus adequately. God has recorded what they need to know about Jesus in the written word of God. And so they may have a dream about Jesus and come to faith, but if they want to know this Jesus more deeply and correctly, the only source for knowing him is what is recorded in the Bible. So somebody has to teach them or they have to learn. Also, I know there is a great movement today to go to cultures that are not literate, that are more oral-based, and to tell the stories of the Bible to those cultures as a way of reaching them with the gospel. And I would agree, certainly, if people don't read, uh, it's not helpful to give them a copy of the New Testament or a copy of a tract. And so we have to reach them through a means that they can relate to, and that's fine. But again, I'm arguing if those people, once they understand the gospel and come to faith, want to grow to maturity in Christ, there's a whole lot of the Bible that is not story. It's didactic truth. Uh, the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and so on, all the epistles. And, and so somebody's got to take that truth and explain it to them. And if, that, if those people want to grow to know Christ well, then they need to learn to read and they need to understand because in his sovereignty, God saw fit to record his message in written form. And just as an aside, too, all of the cultures that have um, contributed to world progress in terms of culture, science, industry, other things, are literate cultures. There's never been an illiterate culture that has made significant progress in, in world history. And so God saw fit to record his message in written form. And that means we have to learn how to read eventually if we don't read. And we have to learn how to study God's word properly because that's how God recorded it. Now, let me balance that by saying this. Sadly, there are some who study the word far more than I have, far more than you have. They know Greek, they know Hebrew, they know theology, but sadly they don't know Jesus. And that's possible. 
I, I know a man like that. He's a liberal, supposedly Christian scholar, but I'm convinced he doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And that is really a tragedy when you know all about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. So the goal here is, John's goal, is that we would believe in Jesus, he says, so that you may have life in his name. The second thing to note is that the object of our faith, then, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And John, in these verses we're considering, gives us three testimonies to who Jesus is. First of all, Jesus' signs, John says, testify to who he is. Uh, John's word for Jesus' miracles is signs. And signs are not for their own benefit. Signs point you to something beyond them. They have significance beyond the mere thing itself. And so John acknowledges that Jesus performed many other signs that he didn't write down in this book, but John chose the ones he did with a direct object or goal in mind, and that is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John records um, at the end of his book, he says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, even the whole world would not contain the books that could be written. So John is being very selective here. He's got seven signs, plus we might add the eighth sign is the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself from the dead. And these signs tell us who Jesus is. Um, Note also, by the way, that these signs were performed in the presence of his disciples. He says that in verse 30. In other words, They were eyewitnesses to these things. They weren't making up stories. And Peter himself uh, testifies that. In 2 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he's especially there referring to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the point is, the disciples weren't good storytellers spinning yarns about this mythical figure named Jesus. They are saying, we were there, we saw it, and they are credible men. Uh, They are not known to be deceivers and hucksters, and none of them got rich preaching the gospel and, you know, lived in a mansion with Cadillacs and all of that. No, They were men who were trustworthy men who gave their very lives to witness for Christ. Now, let me just walk you through John's eight signs. The first one we saw was in John chapter 2, when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee. And that sign showed us that Jesus is the Lord over his creation and also the sign points to the fact that Jesus provides an abundant, joyous salvation for his people. And John adds that that sign revealed Jesus' glory to his disciples. The second sign we encounter is at the end of chapter 4, when John, I mean Jesus, healed the royal official's son. 
And here we learn Jesus has the power to heal from a distance. He didn't have to be present. And also the lesson there was he wants us to move from the kind of foxhole faith that says, help, Lord, my, my son is dying, would you heal him? To the kind of saving faith that I believe the official and his family came to, uh, the saving faith of eternal life. A third sign that John gives is that Jesus healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, and significantly, he did it on the Sabbath, deliberately. And that sign shows us that he is Lord over the Sabbath. He was not under the Jewish, uh, all the things they added to um, circumscribe the Sabbath. And it shows how he exposes the impotence of ritualistic religion. The Jews could not, through their religious ritual, heal this man. And it shows, of course, that Jesus is mighty to save. The fourth miracle or sign is that Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish that he multiplied. And that sign shows Jesus as the new Moses. Moses gave manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus gives food to the people, but it's especially showing that he gives people the satisfying bread of life himself uh, to those who are spiritually hungry. There was a further lesson in that sign because rather than just speaking the word and having a loaf of bread pop up in every person's hand, Jesus deliberately used the disciples to distribute the food to the multitudes. And so there's a, a deep lesson there about how he can use us in our uh, insufficiency to minister the bread of life to those who are spiritually hungry as we follow him. Uh, the fifth sign that uh, John gives is that Jesus walked on the water to the disciples as they struggled against the waves in the night. The background is the feeding of the 5,000. The people wanted to make Jesus king. Jesus refused it, sent the multitude away, forced the disciples into the boat, and right into a storm. And so the message there, the understanding we get, is that Jesus, again, is Lord over his creation because he stilled the storm, and that Jesus is Lord even when we don't understand his ways because the disciples thought he should have accepted the acclaim of the people and uh, been made king. Jesus knew better. The sixth sign is in John chapter 9, where Jesus healed the man born blind, and that follows his discourse in John chapter 8, where Jesus makes an absolutely astounding claim that no one else could make. He said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so that sign in John 9 confirms that Jesus is indeed the light of the world, that he can impart spiritual sight to people who are spiritually born blind. The seventh and 
capstone miracle that Jesus did, sign, is in John chapter 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the tomb long enough. He was beginning to decompose. And Jesus stated the meaning of that sign when he told Martha in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And don't miss his pointed question to Martha, because John wants it to be a pointed question to you and to me. Do you believe this? That's the key. John wrote that sign so that you and I will believe in Jesus and have true life, eternal life in his name. And then the eighth sign is when Jesus himself was raised from the dead uh, in John 20 and 21 that we're looking at. And that is the foundation of our faith. Paul says, if he's not risen, then your faith is worthless It gives irrefutable proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we may believe in him for eternal life. And we have looked at the evidence for that sign in John chapter 20. So Jesus' signs testify to who he is. Secondly, Thomas' confession here testifies to who Jesus is. We've seen how Thomas was entrenched in his doubts He said, unless I can touch his hands and the wounds there and put my hand into the spear wound in his side, I will not believe. And then when he sees the risen Savior and he hears him quote back to him the very words Thomas had said when Jesus was not present, he blurts out spontaneously in verse 28, my Lord and my God. And as I said last week, it's impossible to interpret that as Thomas just making an exclamation because that would be swearing. And Jesus does not rebuke Thomas. In fact, he commends his belief. And John then lifts up that confession of Thomas as the model for John's whole purpose in writing, that you too would believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your God. It ties it back also to the very beginning of John's gospel where he said in the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God, referring to Jesus. And so Thomas's confession just brings things right back to prove what John started with. But it's um, Thomas's confession is the personal faith every believer should have. Jesus is my Lord. He is my God. So Jesus signs Thomas's confession, and then thirdly, John's purpose statement testifies to who Jesus is. In verse 31, he says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. As the Christ, that word means the anointed one in both Greek and in Hebrew, it's Messiah. Uh, he's the one repeatedly promised in the Old Testament to be the Savior of his people, and even of the world. John 1.29, John the Baptist proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is the, the Christ, the Savior, 
not just of the Jews, but of any who will believe. Then as the Son of God, we would be mistaken to understand that as we understand human sonship, where there was a time when sons did not exist and then they come into existence. Jesus is the Son of God by nature. He is eternally related to the Father as Son, Father to Son, and he shares all of the attributes of deity with the Father. Some of those attributes were veiled in his humanity, uh, as Paul explains in Philippians 2. But the Father sent the Son to reveal himself to us. And Jesus shows that in John 5 in a very profound discourse there. And then in John 14, 9, he tells Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus is the human revealer of the Father because he is God in human flesh. Concerning those two uh, titles, the Christ, the Son of God, Leon Morris says, the combination of terms indicates the very highest view of the person of Jesus and must be taken in conjunction with the fact that John has just recorded the confession of Thomas, which hails Jesus as my Lord and my God. Morris says, there cannot be any doubt but that John conceived of Jesus as the very incarnation of God. And so the apostolic testimony about Jesus that we are to believe is written for us in the Word of God, and the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is revealed to us in the signs that he did. He's revealed to us in Thomas's confession, and he is revealed to us here in John's purpose statement. So the third thing to note, then, is that those who have not seen Jesus, but they believe the apostolic testimony, they're the ones who will be blessed. just want to briefly note four things here. First of all, note that the blessing is not for seers, but for believers. Not for seers, but believers. There were many in Jesus' day who witnessed the miracles and they denied Jesus. Even after Lazarus was raised, we saw that many went quickly right back into the city of Jerusalem and reported to the scribes and Pharisees what had happened And rather than everyone falling down in awe and wonder and believing in Jesus, they plotted how they could kill him. Uh, In Matthew 11, 21 to 24, Jesus upbraids those who are seers but not believers. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles, the signs, had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's a profound statement there, the whole thing, than, than 
I can cover here. I just sometimes marvel at it. Jesus is saying that he knows how people would have responded who didn't even hear. And in judgment, it will be more tolerable for them than the ones who heard. And the amazing thing is, the two angels who went to Sodom could have done miracles. And Jesus says Sodom would have repented, but it was God's purpose to judge Sodom. And so they didn't do any miracles, and Sodom got judged. Wow, there's a lot to think on there. But, you know, the point here I want to make is this. You'll often hear skeptics say, well, if I just saw a miracle, I'd believe. And they are deceived. That is not true. Many in Jesus' day saw miracles, but they did not believe. You have to understand that genuine saving faith has three elements to it, three components. First of all, you have to know the basic facts about who God is, who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus did on the cross, why he had to die on the cross for the fact that we all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. You have to know that as God in human flesh, only Jesus could atone for sins, that that's what he was doing on the cross. You have to know the fact he is risen. He did not remain in the grave. Those are just basic facts that everyone has to know. Um, Secondly, though, you have to give assent to those facts as true. In other words, if you say, yeah, I know all about that, but I don't think it's true, you can't be saved. Saving faith has to say, yes, yes, those things are true. But that's not enough to believe because the angels or the demons, they know those facts and they agree that those facts are true, but they are not saved because there's a third element And that is we have to personally apply those facts by abandoning any trust in ourselves or our good works and entrusting ourselves completely to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Um, And so saving faith necessarily entails repentance, turning from our sin to Christ. It necessarily entails committing our eternal destiny totally to Jesus and who he is, what he did. To use an analogy or illustration, um, this week we're going down to Sky Harbor, several of us, and we're going to see some airplanes, and I believe those planes can fly. I see them taking off and landing as I'm there, and uh, yes, yes, I believe that they can fly, And statistically, I believe that they are a very safe means of travel, more safe than driving down the freeway to get there. But that won't get me to my destination. To get to the destination, I have to trust the pilot and the mechanics and the airplane and the laws of uh, whatever aerodynamics to get that thing in the air, all of that weight. And I have to actually commit myself by getting on board. And if I don't do that, I don't get to my destination. And if you don't personally commit yourself to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can believe all day long all this stuff is right and true and good, and you won't go to heaven. Going to heaven requires the faith that commits to Jesus Christ. The blessing, then, is not for seers, but believers. Secondly, the blessing, you note, is not for skeptics, 
Uh, it's not for critics. It's not for doubters. It's for believers. Uh, and so you have to come to the biblical witness about Jesus Christ with a teachable heart. If you come as a skeptic saying, eh, I don't believe, prove it to me. God doesn't mess with you. He'll leave you in your unbelief because your heart is in rebellion against God. Jesus said this in John 7, 17, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether, I speak, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. <clears throat> now here, the Lord graciously meets Thomas's demands by appearing to him and inviting him to touch him. And I believe that that gives hope to all doubters. If you're struggling with doubt, Christ is real and he is gracious and there is hope for you. But there's also, I think, a warning. And if I can put it in very non-theological, even unbiblical terms, don't press your luck as a skeptic. God is gracious to some skeptics, but there is a point at which you go beyond and he just says, fine, you've had plenty of evidence. You just go on in your skepticism and you will go on toward judgment. And so the point is, you've got to have a teachable heart to say, Lord, if these things are true, I will follow you. I will obey Jesus because at the crux of saving faith, is, again, commitment to Jesus as Lord. And the main issue in unbelief is not a lack of evidence. It's disobedience. You know, Peter wrote to believers who had not seen Jesus, and they were suffering persecution for their faith. And here's what he wrote, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. He said, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice, or you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so here are people who are getting persecuted. Some of their loved ones had died under Nero's persecution. And Peter says, you're rejoicing greatly with joy inexpressible, full of glory. And the reason that they were doing that is they had believed in Jesus whom they had not seen. A third point, and I just alluded to it, but that is believers have more than adequate evidence to, on which to rest their faith. John says, I could have written a lot more. In fact, all the books in the world could be written and not contain the evidence. But John said, I just selected these seven signs because that's enough to lead you to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I showed in my message in John 20, verses 1 through 10, there is more than adequate evidence to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The issue... Um, is summed up, I think, or cinched when Thomas, who is an adamant doubter, becomes such an ardent believer 
that he worships Jesus, he goes on, according to tradition, to martyrdom. No man in his right mind would give his life for something he thought was a hoax. Thomas was convinced. John wrote these things that you would be convinced of the trustworthy apostolic eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And as I said, unbelief isn't because you lack evidence. Unbelief is because you have a hard heart. There's sin in your life that you don't want to let go of. And sadly, that sin will destroy you if you hang on to it. Jesus will save you if you come in faith. Then finally, the blessing for believers, John says, is eternal life in Jesus' name. And we've seen many, many blessings throughout the Gospel of John that he's mentioned. In chapter 1, John says we become children of God when we believe in Jesus. In chapter 3, or I mean chapter 4, he says that we drink the living water that quenches our spiritual thirst forever when we trust in Jesus, as the woman at the well did. In John chapter 5, he says we escape from future judgment the instant we believe in Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus shows that we are satisfied with the living bread that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world if we trust in him. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, Uh, We walk in his light so we don't stumble in the darkness because he gives sight to the spiritually blind. Uh, In chapter 15, we saw that our lives can bear fruit for eternity and also that Jesus gives us, uh, conveys to us his love and the love of the Father and great joy when we abide in him. Um, I'm just skimming over it. There's much more. All of those blessings, however, could be summed up under this one word, eternal life. The fact is, we're all going to die physically unless Jesus comes back first. But he promises, as he said to Martha in John 11, that whoever believes in him will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. He's talking about eternal life. Eternal life is the life of God imparted to our souls. The very life of God who spoke our lives into existence imparted to our souls. And it means that we will never perish. That is, never come under God's judgment. I trust you're all familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world, a world opposed to him, by the way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, notice, should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said in John 17 that having eternal life means that we know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And notice that the blessing of eternal life in John, uh, verse 31 of our text here in John 20 is that you have life in his name. And as we've seen, in his name encompasses all that Jesus is in his divine human person and all that Jesus did in his death and resurrection for us uh, in our place. Charles Spurgeon has a 
wonderful sermon on these verses. And he points out in that sermon how John, in his gospel, sticks faithfully to his purpose. He said that if John were writing a gospel to kind of build himself up, he could have boasted about some of his experiences. He was one of the inner three who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, he could have written books and gone on the speaking circuit just telling about his experience there on the Mount with Jesus. And he leaves that out. He leaves that out. And John just zeroes in on his purpose, and he says, I've picked seven signs, and the eighth being the resurrection of Jesus, and I've written these for the purpose that you may believe, not in me, but in Jesus, and that you may have life in his name. And you see that throughout the gospel, and Spurgeon goes into more detail than I can here, but in chapter 1, Andrew finds his brother Peter, and here's what he says to him, John 1.41. We have found the Messiah. And then John adds, which is translated, the Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip goes out and finds Nathanael, and here's what he says. We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets uh, in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so it goes throughout the book. In chapter 3, Nicodemus hears about Jesus. In chapter 4, the woman at the well testifies to her own people, this is the Messiah I've met. And they all believe and say, this is the Savior of the world. In John chapter 5, there are many witnesses to Jesus there. In John chapter 6 and verse 69, Peter testifies Lord, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so John wrote these things so that you, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the question is, have you done that? Have you personally believed in Jesus? You say, well, I've attended FCF since I was a child. That's not what I asked. You know, I didn't ask whether you serve. The question is, have you believed in Jesus and known what it means to receive life in his name? Life, spiritual life, eternal life. Is he your Lord and God? As Thomas confessed is your life in submission to Jesus and growing in that relationship to go back to the airplane illustration have you gotten on board have you committed your life to Jesus Christ because he died in your place on the cross you have to do that and if you don't do that you've lost the whole thing if you do that You have life in Jesus' name. Let me pray. Dear Father, this is so crucial. A matter of eternal life or eternal condemnation rests on whether each person hearing my voice truly believes that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord God in human flesh who took our sin on himself who died in our place, 
who was raised from the dead to verify that you accepted his sacrifice. And Father, I pray that none hearing my voice would miss the key question, do you have life in Jesus' name? That all would believe in him, even if it requires a martyr's death as probably happened to Thomas. And Lord, I pray if your children are struggling with doubts that they would consider Thomas and his example and that they would come back to you as their Lord and their God. We'll ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.